are listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structure prediction. In the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Don Shi Chen, who is an assistant professor at Princeton University, co-leading the Princeton NLP group. Her research focuses on fundamental methods for learning representations of language and knowledge in practical systems, including question answering, information extraction, and conversational agents. Donchi's PhD thesis is titled Neural Reading Comprehension and Beyond, which she completed in 2018 at Stanford University. We start with her influential work on parsing and the path towards focusing on reading comprehension and question answering in the thesis. We talk about her work on Dr. QA, a retriever reader model for open domain question answering. And throughout, we touch on measuring and making progress in NLP, fundamental challenges around generalization, and what the future holds. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. We just completed the first year of the thesis review, so thank you for all of the support and feedback so far, and I sincerely hope that you're enjoying the conversations. If you haven't had a chance yet, be sure to go back and check out all of the great guests from the first 26 episodes, and I'm looking forward to the year ahead. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review, or become a recurring supporter at patreon.com slash thesis review. The thesis review runs on contributions from you, the listeners, and to prepare for the year ahead, and of course, many cups of coffee please consider supporting the show. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mention in the show notes. Here's Don Chi Chen with Neural Reading Comprehension and Beyond on the Thesis Review. So in your thesis, you look into reading comprehension and question answering. So a natural fun question to start is, if we solved reading comprehension and question answering, and we had some general AI system that could answer any question, does a particular question that you would ask it come to mind? Okay. I mean, if we really have a like, perfect AI system, I would let the AI system to tell me, okay, what should I do today? So what should I do for as a, the next step of my research project? <laughs> but I guess we are not there yet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was actually thinking about this question beforehand. That's what I thought as well. I was going to ask it, is there anything left for me to do as a machine learning researcher? <laughs> yeah. But it's actually possible to do something like um, building an AI system that can actually read through all the, like, the relevant uh, references and actually come up with something and come up with something like smart. I guess it, it could actually help us over, uh, help our research process, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And then help to improve it further. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then um, before question answering and before NLP, 
Could you talk a little bit about your background, like before doing the PhD? Yeah, sure. So um, I did my undergrad at Tsinghua University uh, in Beijing, mm-hmm. China. Um, so I actually graduated from a special uh, pilot computer science class called uh, Yao class. I'm not sure if you have heard mm-hmm. of that. So Yao class was basically founded by Andrew Yao, who is actually a Turing Award winner. He, Andrew was actually a professor at Princeton back to 2004, mm. until 2004. Yeah. So for most of the courses we were studying uh, during my undergrad, we were actually centered around theoretical computer science. So we took a lot of courses like uh, algorithms, data structures, uh, complexity, or even crypto and the quantum computing, all this kind of stuff. Um, mm. And I didn't really learn too much about AI or machine learning at that time. Uh, it was almost like 10 years ago. So things have been changed a lot. But actually, at, at that time, we actually just started a lot about theoretical computer science, but not really machine learning kind of topics. Yeah. yeah, I see. Looking back, do you think that's almost like a good way of doing it, that you kind of learn the more maybe abstract, maybe even like more difficult, potentially, things early on, and then that kind of gives you a nice foundation of skills later on? Or do you think you would do something different? Um. I would say, like, learning, I, I mean, everyone comes with a different background. And I definitely appreciate my past experience, like, all those kind of problem solving, all those kind of training that can actually help me. Uh, I actually still enjoy learning all these kind of algorithms and data structures. I'm not sure I cannot say that how much they are useful in my current research. But um, still, I would say, like, uh, this kind of training is definitely beneficial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of other like NLP researchers or machinery researchers, they come from physics and come from other different backgrounds. It's just very natural. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 One interesting thing I saw when I was looking through your uh, resume or website mm-hmm. is that you participated in these programming competitions. That's correct. Yeah. And like won some prestigious competitions like the gold medal in the International Olympiad in informatics. Back then, how much of your daily routine was centered around these, like practicing for them. And again, like, do you think that even at at some abstract level that this kind of taught you skills that you still carry through today? I see. That was actually really long, long ago, probably Uh 12 12 years ago, yeah. So actually I started doing programming competitions when I was very young, like um, I think when I was like 15 something. And Mm -hmm. I uh, practiced... um, um, doing a lot of those, those kind of things until junior year um, of my undergrad. Um, I would just say like a um, program competition is more like uh, doing a lot of problems like uh, like uh, so you uh, you have to uh, so all these problems are like algorithm problems that you have the input and you have the output and the goal is to basically design uh, the most efficient algorithm you can think of mm-hmm. so that can actually take this input and uh, then uh, output uh, to give and, the, and your program can actually uh, give you the desired output, right? So I actually started like um, coding on the programming at an early stage. I think that's really helpful. And also that helped me, um, yeah, I actually build a very good habit for myself to actually learn how to debug things and also can code actually more accurately and code. Uh, yeah, um, and also maybe more like bug-free code, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I also really enjoy that kind of like um, problem solving process. Mm. So, okay, keep thinking what should be the really the right way uh, to go from the input to output and how can you further improve that. And also 
for the programming problems that uh, basically like um, eventually you have to uh, run your program on like a lot of the test cases. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, you basically can, uh, your program will be graded based on like how many test cases will, will actually fail or will pass. So you actually push, you keep thinking like uh, what are the actually the, the possible worst case scenarios or what are the possible counter examples there. So I think that kind of training is actually helpful. Um, thinking about okay, what are the like uh, yeah uh, counter examples there, and uh, whether aware, aware and whether your your algorithm or the program might fail in that case. So then, how did you decide then to go from there to ultimately then starting your PhD? So actually, deciding to um, go to graduate school was actually not a very difficult decision. Um, Actually, I think it's actually more like a cultural thing. So at least at, at that time in, um, for Chinese students or at least at a university like Tsinghua University, I would say like 80 or 90% students actually go to graduate school, at least to, like, to com- uh, complete a master degree. Um, and I would say like a lot of top students, Chinese students decide to um, apply for the uh, graduate programs um, in the US. So basically I just follow that trend. And uh, I had a very uh, good GPA. And uh, I, yeah, I had some prize and also some research experience, so I just decided to apply. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually applied very broadly at the time. Like I think I applied for like fifteen schools, something like that. And I had a very vague, um, vague sense about okay, what kind of research I want to work on. So I, I didn't really know anything about natural language processing, so I didn't apply to any NLP professors. <laughs> so I think I applied to a lot of faculty uh, related to like machine learning or AI, or like even data science in general. So I applied mm-hmm. to like 15 schools. And uh, I, I guess I, I was very lucky. And I, 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 to be honest, I don't know how I actually got into Stanford, but that's the end. Yeah. So, so then you started at Stanford and then maybe taking like this, uh, so you worked on parsing, maybe taking it as, that as kind of like an anchor point. How did you get then interested in this problem, like interested in NLP, and then ultimately... Oh. A work on this parsing problem to start? Oh, actually, I should mention that. Um, so when I first started at uh, Stanford, so I'm not sure you know this, Stanford has like a rotation program. Have you mm. heard that? Yeah, yeah. So basically the idea is that basically all the students can work with uh, three professors and each for like one quarter, basically 10 weeks. As I said, like, uh, I had a really had a very vague idea about what kind of research I want to work on. So I just did three rotations. And the uh, and one of the rotations, uh, I saw basically line up one rotation with Chris Manning. And uh, so well, that was actually my first project. So actually, I, I was working with Chris and also Rachel Social on like knowledge-based completion. Mm, I see. So that was actually one of my rotation projects. And that project was quite successful. So I uh, figured, okay, this could be um, actually one research, the research area that I can actually contribute to. And also, I was actually really like the... I would say the atmosphere and all the environment uh, that the Stanford NLP group of the Stanford NLP group. So that's also one reason that okay, I decided to stay, and that's why how I started doing NLP research. Yeah. And then, so then you wanted to develop this pretty influential parsing method, integrating neural networks into it. Like, how did you move from there, and what do you think of parsing as it's evolved over the years? Like, I would say it's maybe fair to say that it's less of a focus of research now. Yeah. What do you think of this parsing problem and how it's kind of evolved during your career? Yeah, 
so I actually joined the NLP group at the end of my first year in graduate school. And uh, that was a really uh, largely crisp proposal. That was kind of really my first NLP project, right? Um, I would say at that time, like he was very, uh, he's, uh, he has been always very passionate about uh, like Stanford dependencies and universal dependencies, mm-hmm. all those, those kind of stuff. So that was, and uh, I remember like uh, in 2013, uh, Richard had a paper on like, so they, they have been building a lot of things around like tree-based uh, recursive neural networks at the time. Mm. And uh, Richard has something like, uh, I think a compositional vector grammars kind of stuff for uh, constituency parsing. Uh-huh. So uh, Chris said, okay, um, we should also get uh, neural, neural networks working for dependence parsing. So that was really how things, how things started. So actually it took me a very long time to get things working. Uh, it took me probably like one year. Um, at that time, we didn't even like um, have GPUs, have like different frameworks, right? Mm-hmm. And um, we don't, we didn't really know how to get these things working. But I read a lot of papers and uh, try to figure out my own solutions. So, but that took me quite a, um, took me almost one year to get that done. Yeah. Uh-huh. I see. Yeah. yeah. So, um, as you uh, as you probably know that, um, yeah, that parsing paper was quite uh, successful. And uh, but later, later on, I actually just moved from parsing to uh, like question answering reading comprehension. Um, I would just say like um, so. First, uh, the parsing results today uh, are extremely, extremely high, especially for like inch data and also for the in-domain parsing performance. So, so I, I think that's the um, um, one reason that uh, is actually uh, I would say just say fewer people are actually working on parsing um, these days. And uh, I think another really key reason is actually because of all this success of the like sequential deep learning, uh, deep learning models like uh, 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 ARMS or like LSTMs or like transformers, right? So mm-hmm. uh, there has been a lot of evidence showing that these models already encode um, like enough like syntactic knowledge. So it's always a question mark like how useful um, this kind of parsing annotations are still relevant or valuable to the downstream task. So that part, uh, actually at a, like a later stage of my graduate study, I actually had a project trying to, um, really trying to show that parsing is still uh, valuable, but uh, it was not super, uh, it was not a success. So uh, later on, mm-hmm. I just moved on to something else. Yeah. yeah, I see. Yeah, that makes sense. So a combination of like the performance improving, and then it might be that these models are actually learning their kind of own structure that's separate from what's annotated. So then from there, I'd imagine like there's maybe two possibilities. So you have this really successful parsing method. Is it then hard to move to a new area or is it actually easy? And yeah, so then how did you move to what you ultimately focused on your thesis uh, around reading comprehension? Yeah, I would say I actually had a quite a bit of struggle um, in the middle of my graduate school after I finished that parsing paper. Mm. So in the year after the parsing paper, so first I actually also got a lot of interest in like knowledge-based population and the information extraction related topics. But I also had like several projects related to like, uh, let's say cross-lingual parsing, mm. uh, how to make the, the parsing performance even better. Um, but at that time, that was quite a bit of, uh, I would say competition. Uh, just the year after my parsing papers, there were so many like parsing paper came out and pushing the numbers so very high. So that was uh, quite a lesson for me. And uh, 
So that year, I was quite a bit of struggle, I, I would say that. And then I started thinking about the question that, um, okay, should I just continue working on parsing or what should be really the question I should uh, try to solve during the graduate studies, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I would just say like, um, yeah, the bigger question I, I was thinking like, okay, I, I really want to work on like a natural language understanding, but how, how can we actually really measure the progress? And how, uh, how can we know that, okay, what does it actually even mean for like machines to understand or comprehend text? So that is really like a turning point for me to think about this problem and to think about, okay, what should be my next direction and what should be the new direction I should focus on? Yeah, yeah I see. And then the title of your thesis, it's Neural Reading Comprehension and Beyond. So could you just introduce this idea of reading comprehension? It's kind of how you start off the thesis is like comparing it with question answering. Okay, so the so thing I got interested in machine, uh, reading comprehension, machine comprehension is that we uh, want to build computer systems that can actually uh, um, uh, actually can read and comprehend uh, a human text or um, passive text. Uh, so how can we actually do that? So the, I, I would say the definition of reading comprehension is that we want to build, uh, build systems that can actually answer any um, type or any possible questions based on the content of that passage. If, if humans can do that, then machines should be also able to uh, um, give you the answers that are actually reasonable. So I think I, I view that as a way to actually at least measure the progress in machine comprehension. Yeah. Going back to then, could you kind of set the stage for where the current methods were at when you were starting to, to look at this? Were neural networks being used for these problems? Kind of was it like n-gram models? Yeah, like what was yeah, it like yeah. when you were starting to work on this? Yeah, um, I should mention the first, okay. So I think there was a really a turning point when I was really thinking about the direction is that actually I can cross uh, a data set called an MC test developed by researchers at Microsoft. Uh, and also there is a R essay uh, actually written by Chris Burns. Do you know like, uh, the, so the, 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 the title of that essay is actually called uh, towards machine comprehension of text. Mm -hmm. So it's basically, the, uh, he made this proposal that um, basically we want to build systems to answer this kind of reading comprehension questions. And the uh, MC test, the idea is basically like, um, it's like a very simple uh, children's stories, like children's stories with simple vocabulary. And it's a multiple choice, um, a multiple choice data set. So basically the comprehension questions could be like, just really like the reading comprehension test, like a children's story. Okay, what's the name of this uh, turtle? And uh, uh, what the, what did, uh, let's say, I think James do like after he did what, blah, blah. So there are a lot of questions uh, like that. I, I do really think that, okay, this type of the evaluation is actually really interesting to me because mm -hmm. it's actually like a full package. So if we really want to build a system to answer these kind of questions, it has to understand, like uh, solve, like uh, let's say paraphrasing, has to understand these kind of temporal relations, like uh, um, what did this do after blah, blah. And also it ha sometimes it also involves some kind of logical reasoning. And also it has to solve like corruption resolution. Uh, so I, I do think that is a really a full package and it's a very interesting, at least, at least the evaluation um, benchmark. And um, at that time, um, my so MC test actually came out in 2013. 
And I was thinking about that problem in 2015. So there was like two years apart. But uh, actually, MC test at that time, like, uh, I remember the paper had very few like citations, to be honest, like uh, at least two years after the data set was released. And the, the still the best model uh, that actually tackle MC test is like, um, like kind of like a most kind of a sophisticated way of doing like a word matching with like sliding window, that kind of solution. So I, I know that, okay, this is definitely not the right solution to solving these problems, but these problems are interesting to solve. So I would say that is actually um, a really one thing that actually got me interested in this research area. Yeah, yeah. Yes, again, like, uh, I, again, the models were really, really simple at the time. And, uh, um, and uh, on the other hand, like, um, that's 2015, and uh, people start to work on like uh, sequence to sequence models, and they'll start working on like uh, OSTM uh, CM models for like the encoding sentences, this kind of stuff, but not really too much in question answering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever? That's interesting what you said about like the the MC test. You're thinking about it almost as a way of like defining what it means to understand. It's like if you do well on this, then you should understand these different aspects. Um, I guess like to balance against that, nowadays we see a lot of these papers that like these large neural methods will be picking up on these unexpected cor spurious correlations or things like that. Did you ever get to a point where you got like, um, you started thinking about the MC test differently, that it was possible to solve it without understanding? Or do you still think that like these types of things are good ways of kind of defining what it means to understand? Yeah. Um, so in the last few years, there has been too many data sets uh, yeah. in reading comprehension, right? And also the performance is getting uh, basically getting saturated very quickly. Mm -hmm. So actually, I'm still. I'm actually at, at this point, I'm not sure. I'm still, this test has been actually really solved or not? I, I'm not sure after if especially after GPT models came out. Yeah, I think they've still evaluated on that. Anyway, anyway yeah. Um, Definitely, like um, different data sets actually um, uh, ha uh, have different patterns. And uh, the models, actually, the big neural networks are actually very good at like uh, capturing all these patterns. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I would just say, like, it's really hard to define. Like, there have been a lot of papers for sure, for sure, trying to analyze what these models actually trying to learn. But still, um, we are in a situation that, uh, okay, different models actually can solve different data sets, but still we know that models cannot really generalize uh, very well from one data set to another. And uh, so that, that's your problem to solve, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like how difficult do you think is the problem of defining the right problem in some sense? <laughs> like, <laughs> it seems like that's the key, the key issue here that we have like these different benchmarks and then like you're saying you might solve an individual one without solving the larger picture do you think that there's been some move towards like solving more general problems that we might actually be making progress towards it actually understanding versus solving a specific data set i'm asking is, is there yeah. some hope <laughs> um yeah i think definitely they're having a lot of uh, progress since then and uh I'll just say it's not actually a bad idea to actually build one model to solve all the existing data sets we have. Right. Even if different data sets capture different patterns, 
but so it's much, much better than like building like individual data sets, solving different types of problems. And I also think that we need to put more like effort into understanding and analyzing what these models are actually trying to learn. And, uh, and then we can actually have a model that can actually deploy uh, to, uh, in the real world. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's a good lead in to talk about this Dr. QA. Is it DRQA or Dr. QA? Uh, Dr. QA, yeah. Dr. QA, yeah, yeah. method. Could you just talk through like the backstory of of working on this? Um, yeah, kind of like what problem was it solving? Okay, so Dr. Q, um, so maybe let me just describe what uh, Dr. QA paper is doing. So uh, it was two, uh, it was a paper published in ACL 2017, and the goal is trying to build a system that can answer we call it answer open domain questions based on the Wikipedia documents. Mm-hmm. So the goal here is, so open domain questions, uh, basically we want to handle basically most faculty questions, but it could be any sort of faculty questions. And it's actually based on the, like a large collection of documents, such as like 5 million Wikipedia documents. So that's, that's the goal. Um, it's actually a long, uh, very long-term goal, uh, back to like IBM Watson QA systems and a lot of uh, uh, previous works. Uh, it's actually definitely like a long-standing goal. Uh, in NLP, right? And um, the main point of um, dark QA is actually we try to simplify uh, like a, the complex uh, question answering pipeline by using um, a retrieval model plus uh, like a neural reading comprehension model. Mm-hmm. I, I would remind you when we started working on this, it was like, uh, like late 2016. That time was like basically the time that the uh, score data set just came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so it's a basic that timing. So, um, so we figured out okay, the reading comprehension model can do uh, so well by reading like a single passive text. So, can we actually just use that as a key component to solve this like large scale like uh, open domain question answering problems? So that's how things started. Yeah. And the reading comprehension method that was the Stanford attentive reader. So yeah, so I yeah yeah just want to say that I had another ACL sixteen paper before that. Mm-hmm. So uh, that is uh, basically the timing. So I had this ACL 16 paper trying to un- uh, build neural models to solve uh, to solve like reading comprehension problem based on the CN Daily Mail dataset, and the score dataset came out in EMLP 2016. And then I I, uh, I did this like internship at a fair in New York, and uh, we decided okay uh, maybe this is a good idea to actually um, adapt this kind of neural reading comprehension model based on Scott and also based on other datasets to solve the open domain query problems. Yeah, I see. For the Stanford attentive reader, wh- when you submit it to a conference, do you have to anonym- Do you have to call it the anonymous attentive reader? Oh yeah, reviewed. yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I cannot remember. I, we didn't put a uh, Stanford attentive reader in the paper, even in the final version of ACL sixteen paper. Oh, I cannot okay, remember. that makes sense. You probably I just used that title in like in some talks later. Yeah. Um. Also, in my dissertation. Yeah. 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 So yeah, you, you kind of set up this um, two part thing, like you were saying, with the retrieval component, and I think it was TFIDF, right? And then this neural reader. Yeah, again, like going back to the mindset at the time, when you got this to work, was it, um, were people trying this or was it just like you weren't expecting it to work and then you got to a point and you were like, wow, this is like a major breakthrough. What was it like when it this method started to work? 
Okay, and you just mentioned that. Um, so definitely people were not thinking about this problem, but I decided to go to Facebook working with M. Chambos and uh, Jason Weston. And mm -hmm. they have been working on like a memory networks for like yeah, one yeah. year or two years at that point. So they have been actually doing things like um, trying to build memory networks to actually read like uh, to on like long documents or on a set of documents or like or knowledge base. Uh, this kind of stuff. So they have been thinking about this problem uh, in, a, in a while. But again, like, uh, uh, but actually memory networks actually a very simple model. You probably know. I'm not sure if, if you're familiar with that. So mm -hmm. uh, memory networks are mostly like using like backwards encoding. So it actually doesn't really work that well only for like, uh, let's say, Scott type of questions. So that that is actually like just a good opportunity to think about the, both the, think about the intersection. Between what the the what they were trying to do with memory networks and also the neural reading comprehension models on like Scott type of data sets, and also they they try to use like very simple heuristics to pick out like the the memories. So for example, like the top k memories that have like a, a word overlap with a question. This kind of heuristic. So you can think of like a um, the retrieval component of the dark QA as a, just a very natural step. Mm -hmm. um, to, um, of the, that kind of memory uh, retrieval, and also with much more sophisticated in, um, models uh, for the reader part. Yeah, it's a really cool idea. And would you say that it connects, there's kind of a, a chain to later things that you worked on? Um, like you worked on this dense passage retriever, for example. Can you kind of look back and look at like, okay, starting with Dr. QA, going to our systems that we have today for this problem, what are like the major differences? What were like the major steps in between? Yeah, sure. Uh, actually, I need to add one more thing. Uh, I mm -hmm. just forgot to say about that. Like, I do think there is another important concept in the Dr. QA paper. Uh, at least at that time, I think people were not really working on that. Is so people start building reading comprehension model based on the like the, this short passive text, right? But um, but Dr. K also shows the possibility to train reading comprehension models based on only the question answering, uh, question answer pairs, mm -hmm. by using the uh, by using the retrieval to provide like decently supervised examples. I think that's actually a, a key idea to get uh, things working for other data sets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For, for just the question answering data sets instead of the uh, reading comprehension data sets. Yeah. yeah, that that part actually. Yeah, now that you said that, when I was reading through. I think that part would have surprised me because going in, it's so easy to think like this, this weak supervision isn't going to be good enough, but then it ends up working. So then from there, would you say that like it was kind of the introduction of these large scale BERT type models uh, that just generally improved performance and then going from the kind of simple retriever TFIDF to a neural model as well? That was kind of the key key difference um, with today's oh, methods. Yeah, I would say like two big things uh, that happened after the 2017 Dr. Q paper. One is definitely dense retrieval. So this actually, uh, as you said, this start from like uh, Kenton Lee's uh, paper in 2019, the open retrieval uh, question answering model, and then we had this like dense passive retrieval model last year, and this year we even had this like dense phrases uh, paper. Uh, uh, so basically, all center around how we can replace this kind of sparse reputations um, by the dense reputations for the retrieval. So, so I think that is really a big change compared to 2017. And the, uh, the other change is that means uh, this reader model 
that uh, at that time we were building like LSTM based model based on the glove embeddings, right? These days everything is based on the bridge, mm -hmm. and also based all the improvements are based on like even better versions of the pre-trained language models or pre-trained models. Like looking back at at these major improvements, to some extent they're kind of um, they're like more generic than question answering, or have there been like things that are specific to question answering that have kind of stood the test of time? Um, what do you refer to? You mean like pre-trained language models, or yeah, like if the if the big improvements were from kind of generic pre-trained language models, um, then like, is it better to kind of focus on just generic methods that you should apply to a lot of problems? Or is there like a benefit to working on a QA specific model and using that to kind of draw, drive progress forward? Um, actually, I believe both can be beneficial. Um, so uh, as you said, like all the advanced in pre-trained language models can actually also bring the better performance to question answering. But I also did believe that these days some, some models that actually used uh, build using the question answering supervision can be also useful for other LP tasks. And also many NLP tasks can really be converted into a question answering task. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, maybe I should mention that we actually have this ACO paper this year called Dense Phrases. So this, the goal is really trying to build a phrase retrieval system. But here, the, uh, we want to show the phrase retrieval system can be useful for question answering, but also for like other tasks, for, such as like slot filling. And we are actually also experimenting with other NLP tasks. So but here, the idea is that is actually like a general contextualized phrase, phrase representations, right? But the phrase representations actually learn from question answering supervision. Yeah. So that basically means tells us that question answering supervision could be a good starting point for us to build also general models. That's my current hypothesis. Yeah. So do you see like in the future that these retriever reader models and then just are just a, a standard sequence to sequence model then maybe these phrase retrieval models will kind of be like three distinct mm. generic model classes or will we ultimately just use one thing? Yeah. So I assume that you're referring to like uh, retrieval rhythm models to, uh, compared to, uh, let's say, the big language models that can directly be used to do question answering and also this kind of uh, uh, retrieval, retrieval only models, right? Exactly. So in general, I, I still believe that is uh, is actually still very valuable to build this kind of uh, to have this retrieval component. So to have models that can actually retrieve uh, text units, uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, the first, um, you're definitely like more interpretable, right? So you can always trace back where this answer is actually comes from, compared to the large pre-trained models. Mm. This is one reason, and also um, if in the future if we want to let's say we want to update. Uh, the uh, the document collection or update some like uh, document uh, like um, information is actually much easier to do that in this kind of retrieval based models compared to the language models. Um, so right. I, I see that there there is definitely still like a great benefit for doing that, and um, and also there um, actually there is also like uh, there's a paper by Patrick Lewis this year or uh, last year um, called like quite trend test overlap paper. They also show that the basis is kind of cross-board QA models. Actually, 
actually uh, easier to actually do a lot of memorization of the training set. Mm. So if we con don't consider the memorization part, actually still the retrieval-based models are still uh, much better compared to this kind of causal QA models. Is this what you're asking? Yeah, 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 yeah that makes sense. That, um, and, and I agree that like with these retrieval models, you can easily update uh, kind of the knowledge base. Yeah. And there's like this nice decoupling that it's kind of retrieving documents you can interpret yeah, which yeah. documents it's retrieving, and then you could still improve your language model yeah. uh, almost like separately, even if they're all trained together. <laughs> yeah, so one thing I liked about the thesis is you looked at what the model, like you tried to get a sense of what the model was doing on these different questions. There's a lot of different like nice analysis, but like one, one thing you noted is that squad ended up requiring less reasoning than you thought. So like just stepping back in general, like, do you think that we've made progress on kind of these really core issues that you highlighted? So reasoning, you highlighted robustness, interpretability. Um, have we made progress? Are these still like the core issues to be looking into today? Um, I definitely think there has been a lot of exciting progress in the last few years. And uh, but still, there are still challenging problems to solve as well. Um, so there has been a lot of evidence showing that, um, yeah, again, like the models cannot generalize from one data set to another data set, or the models are actually very easy to break. Um, mm -hmm. I, I still, I'm actually still actively working on this, um, the project related to this uh, aspect, but I think it's actually a very challenging problem to make progress on, to, if I had to be honest. Um, if you really want to build a, like one single unified model that can actually um, even generalize to out of domain distributions, I think it's still like an open problem. Yeah, yeah. So in, in 2019, uh, yeah, after I graduated, we had this like MRQA share task. At that time, we had this goal that trying to build a model that can actually generalize to like the out of domain, out of distribution uh, data sets. But I still think the numbers are pretty low. So, um, so that is still like an open problem to solve. Yeah, I see. And then what about like specific aspects like reasoning? Do you think that there's a benefit to like defining really specific tailored data sets to really get at these different aspects? Or do you think that just like more generic data sets will somehow like improving progress on those will somehow naturally improve progress on things like reasoning? Actually, I, I do like the idea of like creating data sets, for, for example, like multi-hop reasoning, or like a preference reasoning or uh, numerical reasoning, this kind of data set. Uh, I, I do think that the progress has been also really fast um, for like uh, pushing numbers on this data set. Uh, still, I, I think the problem is right now we just have a model that can actually fit in the distribution of one particular data set. And then it's very hard to understand, okay, whether this type of reasoning can generalize to another. Yeah, yeah. There has been a lot of something going on, but I'm not sure if there is a really like, a, again, like a one biggest thing that can actually unify all these efforts. That part, I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I see. So like underlying all of the challenges are is out of distribution generalization. Yeah, so. yeah. it's a really difficult problem. Yeah. yeah. So we mentioned BERT. Um, like these large scale neural sequence models. Um, if you know, some of the listeners haven't, aren't familiar with those. I always like asking like, what was it like? So you were working on these problems. You're probably really familiar with the numbers that were coming in. Right. And then like you see all these changes happening. 
what was that like? Did you start thinking that like everything was solved or <laughs> yeah, like what was it what was it like? Oh, I should share like a story. Um actually I very I remember this very clearly that bird came out the day before I uh actually did my defense. Exactly the day before my defense. That was really like um I think like 2018 October, yeah. So that was really like a mind blowing, like a more a moment to me. You know, like I was even joking that okay, maybe I should just go back and do another PhD. That's really like after bird came out. Um, you know, like before the bird, uh, for like two years, at least for two years, I had been a lot of work doing like architecture engineering, trying to, to uh, design all different types of tension model for like uh, both the question and the passage, at least in the space of the reading comprehension. I feel after bird came out, basically all mm -hmm. these things, uh, I was just saying are not too relevant. Uh, but it also makes sense that, yeah, yeah. because think about this bird is really like, of, at least of, uh, applying bird to question answering is like taking the concatenation of the passage and the question, and then you apply many layers of the self-attention. So essentially they're really trying to address uh, all these kind of attention models, but just in a more like a, simple and um, principled way, in my opinion. So so I, I do think the pre-training is super, yeah, def definitely, like, again, like it was a mind-blowing uh, moment to me. And this is also the reason that I decided to go to Facebook, to be honest, like, uh, to do like a lot of pre-training stuff um, for the year after, yeah. That's funny that uh, it came right before your PhD defense. I guess you can, yeah, you're like, hurry, give me the PhD before these numbers get out of date. No, I'm just kidding. It's the ideas that are important. But um, yeah, so maybe just in the interest of time, we'll quickly like jump to this other application you did with, with Dialogue. Yeah, like what, what was this project like? Like the idea of integrating both uh, question answering and Dialogue? Yeah, so, um, so this is largely a collaboration with Shiva Reddy. And uh, I basically, so the project is called Conversational Question Answering or COCA. So I basically view the COCA as like a natural uh, next step after like uh, after we solve this like a single passage, single term um, reading comprehension problem. Can we actually build models to actually uh, answer this kind of context dependent um, questions? So, so this is basically the main idea of the COCA uh, project or COCA dataset. And, uh, mm -hmm. Um, so I basically think that um, we can think of the COCA as like a more like context dependent questions compared to the single term questions. But you can also think of this as like, uh, I do think it could be very useful and valuable uh, as a, like a key component of the dialogue systems. But it's actually m much easier to evaluate compared to like, so let's say chit chat style dialogue systems. But still a very important, could be think a sort of uh, important component in like the in uh, like uh, dialogue systems. So do you view, so both of these are really ge generic problems, right? Like question answering and dialogue. I think maybe Jason Weston, if he's listening, he would view maybe question answering as like a part of dialogue. Do you view somehow like question answering as the more general thing and dialogue is... I don't know if my question makes sense. Uh, <laughs> which, if, if we want to solve everything, which problem should we work on? That's what I'm asking. Why not work on both, right? Both, yeah. I mean, okay. I, I, I even think question answering can be interpreted in many different ways. It really depends on like, okay, you you want to really, uh, for example, question answering, you can also make the, go deeper into the complexity of questions. 
And you can also convert the other problems, other NLP tasks into question answering. But you can also care more about the applications. So it's more about the distribution of questions. So, you should, so if you really want to say, we want to build a question answering systems, or like as part of the like search engine or like digital systems. So you care more about what kind of questions people actually ask. So I'm just saying like all these problems can be actually interpreted in many different ways. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yes, yeah, so then with these, with, with these large scale models, um, I noticed like one thing you had looked into was efficiency. So is this something you're interested in? And could you just speak a bit to uh, kind of like the challenge of efficiency and uh, like you, you helped out with this competition. Did anything surprise you from that? Any results? Okay, just in general, actually, I get more and more interested in the efficiency aspects of the NLP systems these days, just because the current models are getting too big. And uh, they actually require too, like, too much memory and also the storage. So I do think that solving the efficiency is getting more and more important. Um, yeah, so regarding the efficient QA, so you're talking about the efficient QA uh, competition, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I do see like there are a lot of interesting results actually that came out from that uh, competition, and um, so people having people having uh, a lot of like uh, really smart ways to actually shrink the so the key idea is that okay if we really want to store like uh, let's say like what dot uh, qa did is like we want to store all the like the retrieval units or all the text blocks in Wikipedia how can you make it smaller. That's the key, uh, the key, key goal of the uh, efficient QA system. So um, mm-hmm. these days, I just realized, uh, and the people have been doing like, let's say, uh, quantization or like a redu- uh, or even a better filtering and the two how, and this and the better ways to actually make the model smaller, uh, uh, make the storage smaller. And uh, I remember there is also like. Um, the winning, uh, the uh, smallest, uh, like winning system is actually have this idea that you don't have to store everything. Instead, you just uh, try to build like a nearest neighbor model to actually try to build a model for mm-hmm. all the possible questions and the answer pairs. And then you just do retrieval for those question and answer pairs. So th- I think that is uh, like the, uh, the winning uh, solution for the smallest system category. Yeah. Do you think that these, like, the constraint of having it to be efficient, that'll lead to some new modeling insights? Or will it kind of be like modeling will be driven by large scale models and then we'll always have like a more efficient version of it, if that makes sense? Um, yes. Yeah, uh, definitely a reasonable question. Like, uh, I don't have really a good answer. I, I do think that, um, yeah, we can build a large model and then compress later, but. Uh, but maybe if the goal is really, uh, yeah, I don't know. If the goal is really to start with a smaller model, maybe there could be uh, new ideas like that nearest neighbor approach. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd like to throw in some speculative questions that I don't think anyone knows the answer to. Yeah. So <laughs> that's 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 a good perspective, though. So then, after your PhD, um, we, yeah, we talked about like some of your outgoing paths of of work. So even like working on this Roberta model. Um, working on dense passage retrieval, uh, this this phrase based model. Like now that you're so you're at Princeton leading a lab, if you look back, like where is your PhD work? Have you kind of branched out from it in different directions? Is it all kind of related? 
Um, I would say right now I'm building a research lab at Princeton. So I currently have like uh, six PhDs. I'm going to have six PhD students very soon. So my students are working on different aspects. Um, yeah, um, I definitely don't, I, I never really claim myself as like question answer researcher. I would just say like, I'm very interested in basically all, almost everything that can actually help us build like stronger natural language understanding systems. Right. And uh, just in particular, I'm really interested in all like this kind of representation learning of like a, a language, like pre-training uh, language models. But also I'm very interested in like uh, how we can build our computation models for like a human knowledge and uh, how we can encode human knowledge and uh, the knowledge basis and how we can uh, encode and store them and retrieve them or even maintain the update them. All these questions are super uh, exciting and uh, also I would just view them as like a long-term research questions yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah oh I sh uh, yeah as I, I should also mention that um yeah um I'm also these days I'm just getting more and more interested in like uh thinking about these uh practical aspects of the NLP systems so including the efficiency including also like a generalization kind of stuff so how uh, if we really want to deploy the current NLP systems how we can Makes them more useful. I, I know it's a big, a big question, but it's just uh, um, currently I have lots of projects trying to target these questions. Yeah. Do you have like a, a method for picking new problems, or is it kind of just organic? Like, you know, some are based on what you've worked on before, some are based on maybe an application. I would say picking like a really the right uh, research problems is actually very difficult. For, uh, it's very challenging and difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, to be honest, like, um, I know some people just do research more for fun, but sometimes I care quite, uh, quite a bit about, okay, whether this, my research is useful or is valuable to the research community. So this is one question that keeps uh, mm -hmm. occurring to me that, okay, I have to convince myself that, okay, this is an interesting problem and uh, it's also unique enough and also is actually useful. So this is this one dimension that I probably care quite a bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think I have secrets. Just keep thinking, keep searching. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, um, yeah, maybe like since you've so since you've been become a professor, like now that you're maybe you know advising versus being a student, is there something you've learned about the PhD process from now having this different perspective as being an advisor? Um, yeah, I would say working with students uh, is a very different experience to me, for sure. I'm still learning. I'm still, I still think I'm a very junior faculty at this point. And uh, just try to, uh, because everyone is very different and has very different taste. Mm -hmm. And how you can actually align uh, your research goal and uh, the student research interest is actually always something that I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, yeah I see. And I'm just trying to... Um, yeah, tell them, like, uh, try to figure out what they are really excited about. And uh, then we can always find something that we can work together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so finding the alignment. And then, um, yeah, this, is, this has been great going back. And then I always end up the thesis review with two questions. So first is, um, if you can think back and think of what your objective function was during the PhD, uh, was it, like, based on scientific exploration um, was it based on like career prospects? And then do you think that that objective function has changed now? Yeah, um, I would say I was definitely not optimizing for career aspects, definitely not. I would say, um, yeah, when I started my PhD, I was really, like, again, like I was pretty young and I had no idea about what kind of research I want to work on. 
So I would say, uh, yeah, the main research, uh, like the main objective I was trying to optimize for is really like the personal growth, uh, like uh, to um, learn how to be a researcher, like how to pick problems and uh, how to read and write better and also like time management, all this kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, and at a later stage of graduate study, I would say like, uh, I feel, okay, I probably had a way to figure out, okay, what kind of research I want to work on. And, uh, and I just um, thought more about, okay, how can I make my research more useful and more valuable? to the research community, this kind of question, yeah. And then if you could come up with one piece of advice for a new researcher uh, who's just getting started. Um, yeah, I would say like, um, first, I really think the, the pace for doing research these days is crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very, very fast. Uh, it's even very different compared to like even four or five years when I was uh, like doing it like uh, in the middle of my grad school. Even these days, like many undergrad students uh, have lots of papers. You probably know that. Even the prospective, st- I mean, at, when I was at Stanford, we were always told that you just need three papers to graduate. But these days, like under, even undergrad uh, prospective students have like more five papers or even like more than that. So, uh, yeah, for the advice, I would just say, like, I know it's hard, but just trying to slow down a little bit and trying to figure out, um, okay, what would be really the research areas that you can contribute to? Like, what, should, what would be a really, like, a unique and um, ambitious enough uh, direction that you can pursue, you can really make your real contributions, that so you can actually claim that, okay, this is your contribution at the end of the day. Because there are just too many papers coming out every year, and uh, I would just say the, 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 the reality is really like a lot of papers will be actually forgotten very quickly, right? So it's just really important to uh, like um, do something that is actually big enough and also not very easy to be scooped. But I, I think it's very hard. But I think it's very important, um, at least uh, in the current environment. Yeah. Yeah. So trying to balance. The need to get out more papers, but if that means kind of doing local changes, then it might actually be kind of globally optimal to slow down and try to carve more of a major path. Oh, maybe I should mention that. Um, so Fei Li had an article uh, probably 10 years ago, something like how to do good, good research and write good papers. Uh, maybe the title is like something like that. And that really had a big impact on me. Um, she said something like, uh, yeah, um, basically by the end of the grad school, you will be only, um, something like you will be only defined by your best work. So this is something I keep telling my current students as well. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Yeah. I really like that article. Yeah. But it was like 12, like 10 years ago. And these days, you know, the, pay, the number of papers are growing like exponentially. So I, I still like go back to read this uh, many times and think about, okay, what should be my next step? Yeah. Yeah. And I was going back through the old episodes because we just reached one year for thesis review and uh, Aaron Corville had some similar advice. And he basically said that like, you should also think of it as the PhD is one of the unique times in your career where it's possible to do this. Like you, you do have um, you're always going to be busy, and maybe during the PhD, you have a bit more time to take a longer term. View. I, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Thanks so much for doing this. Uh, 
this was really interesting. I, I've been getting interested in these retrieval models. So it was, um, yeah, it was fun to go back and, and hear some of, some of the history about them and how they connect with what you're working on today. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah.